0: What are you willing to put up with? How much does it take to provoke a reaction from you? It's the school holidays, so parents are facing the daily antics of children who seem to push all your buttons and you have to work very hard to stay calm and in control. Yeah, there's childishness to contend with, but where's that line? There's this cross that, that you're provoked, you, you react Discipline is brought to bear. There are some colleagues in your workplace. They just don't seem to learn what is needed to get the job done. A few pointers, some retraining, the performance review conversation. How much do you have to put up with until there's change? Uh, politically, how many times do you think an MP can stuff it up before they should get the sack? How much patience are you willing to extend? How much incompetence are you prepared to cope with? What about church? Does it matter how well other people on that side of the congregation are doing? with regard to living faithfully for Jesus. Oh yes, there's lots of encouragement and, and support, learning and mentoring in the Christian life, plenty of patience and prayer, but does there come a point where you've got to do something, you've got to say something, it's not good enough? Uh, how much are you willing to put up with? How much does it take to provoke a reaction from you. Uh, that is the critical issue facing the church in Thyatira that we're looking at this morning. They are willing to tolerate what Jesus says shouldn't be tolerated anymore. Uh, we're five weeks into looking at the book of Revelation. Uh, the last book in the Bible. It's both fascinating for Christians and confusing. It's the book some people can't get enough of. It's the pe- book that some people never want to read at all. Uh, the final book in the Bible uh, is introduced to us. We saw back in chapter one by the Apostle John, as a prophecy. Uh, chapter one, verse three: "Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart uh, take to heart what is written in it." So enjoy your blessing this morning, Sophia. You read it aloud to us. Uh, it is a prophetic message about the coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, but John says it's also a letter uh, with a message from the glorious Lord Jesus, communicated through John, addressed to seven churches, which we've said several times represents all the churches. And uh, the third thing he says is that it is a revealing, uh, hence the name, Revelation. Now, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. That is, this book is revealing what is hidden, what's unseen. In particular, revealing that what is happening in a local church is actually playing out as part of a greater cosmic struggle, a greater spiritual battle. Inside the churches addressed by the Lord Jesus, there are good and godly things happening. Faithfulness to the gospel is being observed. Love is being shown to the least and the lost. Material sacrifices are being made. Hostility and antagonism are being endured. But inside many of these churches addressed in this book, there are also failures to stand, weariness in the gospel, sins that are pressing in, worldliness that's being embraced. And the great revealing is that these seemingly small and insignificant actions inside these congregations are actually part of a great spiritual, cosmic scale experience that we will see later in the book of Revelation and it plays out in ordinary believers. So, for example... Uh, later in the book, uh, the prayers of ordinary believers are pictured as incense before the throne of God. Something as simple as our prayers seem mundane here now, individually and corporately. No, they are revealed to be something very important and something precious to the Lord. Uh, the persecution that we see believers enduring, particularly in this book, where they might feel alone and isolated. No, the curtain is pulled back and it actually revealed it's actually part of a great spiritual struggle where God's people are pictured as resisting the brutal forces of a, a great beast or a dragon or, or bending and faltering and denying the faith. Uh, we've seen in these letters that, that believers are shut out of business and trade because they wouldn't associate with the worship of idols. And, and we'll see that being revealed that they won't bow down to an evil beast or receive the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell. We see Christians in little churches who call to endure and persevere, thinking it's just them, but then a great revealing of heaven is seen, and the true king, and many, many believers who can't be numbered, and the Lord is victorious in the end. They live in a world where the Roman emperor seems so powerful and oppressive, being worshipped as a living God. But in this book, the curtain is pulled back and Satan is revealed as the real power behind the emperor and worship of idols. Imperial power is really satanic opposition and it will all eventually be swept away by the true King and God's sovereign power, it'll all be thrown into the lake of fire. See, these letters that we're walking through, they aren't a distraction or a sideshow. They aren't a warm-up act until we get to the real action in the book. No, no. All the beasts and dragons, all the plagues and curses, all the scenes of judgement and destruction, all the episodes of sacrifice and martyrdom, all the displays of heavenly celebration and worship that, that come later in this book are a dramatic revealing of the cosmic spiritual struggle played out as ordinary everyday Christians engage in the struggles and trials that we see in these uh, seven letters and these seven churches. Well, we, we come to the fourth church addressed by the Lord Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, each letter begins in the same way, carefully structured and shaped. And we, we encounter this repeated pattern, uh, uh, picking up elements of the Lord Jesus as he's described in chapter 1. That uh, dramatic picture of uh, Jesus in heaven seen by John. And and in this letter to the church at Thyatira, here's the elements that are picked up from chapter 1, verse 14. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And that is how Jesus is described for the church at Thyatira. Eyes like blazing fire. That is Jesus whose vision penetrates through all obstacles. Nothing is hidden from him. This is the Jesus who sees everything clearly, including the state of the church at Thyatira. This is the Jesus with the bronze glowing feet. This is the Jesus who will subdue all his enemies under his feet. This is the Jesus who will, verse 27, rule the nations with an iron scepter, will dash them to pieces. This is the Jesus who judges and punishes, including the wicked in the church at Thyatira. Uh, in terms of an introduction for a letter to the church at Thyatira, it's an ominous beginning. The Jesus who is presented as an all-seeing judge who crushes his enemies under his feet. But there is praise the church at Thyatira. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faithfulness, your service and perseverance, that you're now doing more than you did at first. This is a good church. What church wouldn't want to be known for these virtues? Love. Love for the Lord Love for the believers, love for the lost, faith, their continuing trust in the Lord Jesus and the gospel, service, their commitment to minister and help brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, perseverance, in the context of persecution and hardship, here is a congregation that is standing firm, are doing more. Now, we read about the Ephesian church, they were scolded for losing the first, their first love, for, for doing less than they used to. But not Thyatira. They are working harder and they are doing more than they used to. Which I take in comparison to the Ephesians, I take it to mean that they are growing and improving in their evangelism. They are speaking up more for Jesus in their community. Uh, all of that is a pretty impressive CV for a church. Uh, although this letter to Thyatira is the longest of the seven and much of it is taken up with a particular area of failing in the church, uh, we should pause and take note of these five important aspects of church life, things that should be pursued, things that should be valued. We want to pursue what the Lord Jesus commends and praises, love and faith, service and perseverance. Perseverance. Growing evangelism. Now, these are virtues and values on the list of what the Lord Jesus wants for his churches, including us here at Hastings Baptist Church. We want to be people of love and faith, of service and perseverance, of a growing commitment to telling others the gospel. But as Good as those attributes are for a church, the Lord Jesus expects more. Verse 20, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. In a similar way to the church we looked at last week, Pergamum. Uh, the church of Thyatira tolerates teaching they should reject. What, what's the nature of this distorted teaching at Thyatira? Uh, in Pergamon, a comparison is made with, with Balaam, uh, the prophet who masterminded the plan to derail Israel in the wilderness by seducing them into sin through food and idolatry and sexual immorality. In Thyatira, the comparison is made with Jezebel, the, the pagan wife of King Ahab. We heard a little bit of her story from one king's. If you haven't worked it out, she's a nasty piece of work. And uh, uh, her goal was to champion the cause of Baal worship, the fertility god of the Canaanites. Her strategy was to develop and encourage the worship of Baal alongside the worship of the Lord. In her public face, she wasn't denying worship of the Lord. Rather, she was saying that Israel could worship many gods. Just add worship of Baal alongside your worship of the Lord. Now, the technical term is syncretism. It's, it's in those family of words like synchronized, you know, together in time. Well, this is uh, together in beliefs, to mixed beliefs, beliefs alongside each other mixed and merging religions. That was uh, Jezebel's public agenda, but, but privately uh, she was working away to murder all the prophets of the Lord. She wanted to ultimately do away with a, a covenant relationship between the Lord and Israel. Well, it seems that the church in Thyatira had a woman in the congregation who was claiming to speak for the Lord and her message, the Lord has told me what you need. I speak for the Lord as one of his prophets, verse 20. The Lord has shown me his deep secrets, verse 24. And I want to tell you, it's okay for the followers of Jesus to also worship idols in order to get on with our neighbours, in order to survive in our pagan culture. In the Roman world in the first century, if you wanted to trade, if you wanted to be part of business, you needed to belong to the association, the guild, the federation. But belonging required you to participate in the temple worship of the God who protected your trade. So as the God of fire, Vulcan was the patron of metal workers. Ceres, as in the word serial, was the goddess of agriculture and crops and fertility and grain and therefore the protector of farmers. Mercury was the god of commerce and so he looked after the merchants. Hephaestus was the god of blacksmiths, carpenters, craftsmen, artisans and sculptures and on and on it went. Every occupation, every job had their god, their divinity. And if a Christian wanted to work in that trade and that business, then the worship of these gods was a requirement. So no doubt it's very tempting to hear someone in church teaching, hey, it's okay to be a Christian, and at the same time it's okay to worship whatever gods you need to in order to get on about your business. It's okay to go along to the temple associated with your trade. It's okay to eat the food sacrificed in honour of that god. It's okay to sit in on and be part of the prayers offered to the idols. It's okay, even perhaps if you have to, to indulge in the temple's sexual immorality. It's hard to know if the sexual immorality referred to here was actually physical sex or whether the reference is metaphorical, a spiritual adultery. The word, it's just one word translated sexual immorality. But it's hard to know if that's the idea here because it's used in the next sentence but it's not sexual immorality there. So uh, uh, it could be actual sex it's being asked of. Ancient temples in that uh, era were known for such things. But, but the same word that's used uh, when Jezebel has been given time to repent of her immorality it's the same word as the previous sentence where they translated it as sexual immorality. The implication is that well, she's been given time to repent of her immoral teaching. Uh, certainly later in this bo- book, uh, this word for, that's translated sometimes sexual immorality is just used for the immoralities of Babylon the Great, uh, probably a reference to the Roman Empire. And in that context, it seems more about spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness, denying a proper fidelity to the Lord. So this Jezebel character may be teaching an allowance for actual sexual activity as part of idolatry, or rather her teaching is promoting a spiritual adultery, allowing believers to be unfaithful to the Lord as they metaphorically get into bed with the idols. Uh, whichever it is, both are completely unacceptable to the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her, again this sounds like a kind of spiritual unfaithfulness by following her, I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. That is the, the people who are following her teachings what a terrifying prospect the Lord Jesus with his blazing eyes of fire seeing clearly into the life of this false teacher and her disciples and where he sees no repentance the one with the burnished bronze feet will crush his enemies in judgment Well, no one in this congregation is being asked to join a friend in a pagan temple. Uh, no one's inviting you to share a meal in honour of some so-called god. Uh, no one is inviting you to offer a sacrifice to the idol of whatever business you happen to be working in. Uh, yes, our culture has uh, many elements of sexual immorality associated with it, but no one is pressing you to engage in that if you don't want to. So do we get off scot-free in our day and age? Are we dodging the issues that, that they faced in Thyatira? No, I don't think so. I, I think syncretism... Multiple religions side by side. I think that's alive and well in our day, just as it was in the first century. That is bringing other things alongside orthodox Christianity. You can, We can have space for them both. I'm not telling you you can't have this, but let's just make room for this next to it. See, I think the health and wealth gospel is another religion that people are Trying to graft into Christianity. Everyone in our culture wants to be rich. And prosperity teaching is just baptizing worldly greed and materialism into the church. And it's so tempting. Who doesn't want to be rich and comfortable? I found myself in my own imagination uh, a couple of weeks ago toying with what life would be like if I won $33 million on Powerball. It's never going to happen because I never buy a ticket but the seduction of money and luxury, oh it's very powerful. And then to have some Christian teacher say I oh, look, I can have faith in Jesus and I can be extravagantly wealthy in this life. No, no, no more than that. I should be extremely rich because that's what Jesus wants for me. All of that is a devastating and destructive lie. 1 Timothy 6 Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into, any, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That kind of teaching cannot and must not be tolerated. This health and wealth prosperity stuff, it's another religion and we have to say no. And followers of Jesus who become disciples to prosperity must be st- strenuously warned no. I think the move to embrace the LGBTQ plus agenda is another religion with its own creeds and confessions, its own style of worship, its own God. And people are wanting to transform Christianity with, the, with that agenda. It's another form of syncretism. Our broad culture is pushing full steam ahead with uh, new sexual practices and new sexual identities. And some Christian teachers and some churches are doing all they can to normalise and, and welcome this new sexuality into the pattern of church life. Now, it was. Some tried to twist and bend the Bible to make it stand on its head and say, look, it's all okay. And most of us said, no, that doesn't work. And they've just sidestepped the Bible altogether. The argument of choice is a testimony. I'm a good Christian, I believe all the things you believe about Jesus, but I also believe I'm right about my sexuality. I was sad and oppressed, now I feel good. Who are you to deny how I feel? We have Christian professors and theological colleges changing their minds about this matter because their children have declared themselves gay. And who doesn't want to extend empathy and compassion to someone struggling with their own sexuality and sexual desires? Surely the loving thing to do is accept and affirm everyone in this category. But to do that is to tolerate what Jesus does not permit. It's not loving at all. 1 Corinthians 6 or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's not loving to tolerate and affirm a lifestyle that sees people excluded from the kingdom of God. It's not loving to belittle the godly lives of real believers who battle with such desires and yet remain celibate and faithful to the Lord. It's not loving to deny people the truth of the gospel so that they might be washed and sanctified and justified and transformed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Syncretism, mixing biblical religion with old idolatry or new versions of morality, it is a practice with a long and tragic Old Testament history, centuries of it for us to read and think about. It was the great disaster for God's people in ancient Israel. It was the road to death and judgment. This kind of syncretism, this kind of idolatry resulted in Israel being vomited out of the land into exile. Why will the Lord Jesus bring judgment down on those wrapped up in this false teaching in Thyatira? Because this woman is promoting something that's deceptive, and destructive. And the Lord Jesus will not let this gangrene infect his church. He will cut off and crush such false teachers and their misguided disciples. He will not t- tolerate such a deadly contagion at work in his bride. And here is the great fault of the church at Thyatira verse 20 Nevertheless, I have this against you you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, Jesus is confronting this church about their toleration of this deceptive teacher and her ungodly teaching. And more than that, he is, verse 23, challenging all the churches to not tolerate unfaithful teachers and destructive teaching. Uh, when Jesus brings down his judgment in Thyatira, verse 23, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Uh, putting up with false teaching and false living is a big deal to the Lord Jesus. Jesus. Here's the great test for us as a church this morning. Will we be a good church? Oh, a church marked by love and faith, service and perseverance, growing evangelism, but also a church who will not tolerate distorted teaching and corrupt living. So as I asked at the beginning, what are you willing to put up with? How much does it take to provoke a reaction from you? Because we shouldn't sit back and expect, well, the Lord Jesus will send judgment from heaven to sort out any troublemakers that might one day appear in our church. Uh, he's told churches what to do. And here he is reber- rebuking a church that is being lax about their duty. Now, we should never imagine that this process in real life would be easy or straightforward. Uh, wrong teaching arrives through people who think they are being kind and generous, who think they are delivering God's deep secrets, not Satan's deep secrets. They think they are improving the Christian faith. Uh, wrong living is promoted by people who just want themselves and everyone else to be happy, who believe that they, they aren't hurting anyone, no one else has to copy them, who believe that, look, this is a way of life that's acceptable to Jesus. And for a church to draw a biblical line, to say no to distorted teaching or disordered living, to insist that Jesus' words and Jesus' way is the best and right way, that's going to feel mean and hard and confrontational. But the Lord Jesus clearly tells us not to tolerate what he is unwilling to tolerate. Now today, I don't think we have false teachers running amok at HBC. I don't think we have extreme sinful lives playing out here. But we'll probably have one or both of those situations in the future. What are you willing to put up with? How much does it take to provoke a reaction from you? I like to think of these kinds of passages as a fire drill. We don't have a fire in our church at the moment, but if we did, would, would we go through the process? Could we do it? Could we do what Jesus tells us to do? Would we not tolerate what he doesn't tolerate? And this isn't an issue just to be faced by church leaders. It's an issue, Jesus says, for the whole church all the members of this church must share in this work together. We are responsible for one another, what we believe and how we live. It's not easy exercising that sort of collective authority in a church. But Jesus promises, verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. It's a promise to share in the authority of Jesus on the last and great day. Now the promise is from Psalm 2 where God's king will rule over the world and here that promise is extended out to faithful Christians we will rule with him. In this regard, learning together to exercise the authority of the Lord Jesus in our church, in some ways is a kind of training and practice for ruling with him in eternity. And the promise of the morning star is the promise of being united with the Lord Jesus himself. Because as we learn in the last chapter, Jesus is the morning star. Well, the letter to the church in Thyatira closes. As each of the letters close, Jesus says to each church, verse 29, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, you, you might be familiar, you might have heard that something kind of like that in the Gospels because these are essentially the same words that Jesus used when he was teaching parables in the Gospel accounts. So, for example, uh, Mark chapter 4, after telling the parable of the four soils, uh, Jesus says, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And when Jesus spoke in parables, he was speaking to people who were potentially hard or hostile towards him. He wasn't assuming a warm reception of his message. But he was, he was putting the parable out there. And if, if someone did want to listen hard and press in, they could they could understand, they could grasp what Jesus was saying. But if they were indifferent or apathetic, the message of the parable would pass them by. It would fade away, be lost to them because, well, they didn't really want it. Well, when each of these letters closes with these words, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, there isn't an assumption that these messages to the churches will be taken to heart and put into practice. No, no, Jesus puts these letters in front of us. And if we want to listen hard and press in, we can understand and we can grasp what he's saying and we can rise to the challenge of the letter. But if we're indifferent or apathetic, the message of these letters will just pass us by. It'll fade away. It'll be lost to us because we didn't really want it. At the heart of this letter is a challenge for Je- from Jesus to each of us individually and corporately to not tolerate false teaching and wayward Christian living when it comes to life in Hastings Baptist Church. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks and praise that you speak from heaven and we know your will for us. We pray that you would give us discernment to recognise what you will not tolerate and courage to be victorious, to stand with you and do what needs to be done as a church. Help us, we pray, to live out these good attributes of love and faith, service and perseverance, and a determination to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus and to stand faithful to the true gospel and to true gospel living. Help us, we pray. Amen.